Hello, and welcome to the Stockouts. This is your show at FreightWaves for the CPG industry, consumer packaged goods and their supply chains. I'm your host, Mike Bowdendistel. I'm the head of intermodal solutions here at FreightWaves. I work primarily on the data side of the business, uh, but also do some content creation on the CPG uh, industry as well as uh, in intermodal industry. And what I have for you today on the Stockout is I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, you know John, uh, Tyson's announcement last week to cut corporate staff. I'll talk a little bit about CPG earnings season, which those results have continued to come in, I think, better than expectations, uh, maybe showing that the consumer is hanging in there and uh, that CPG companies' um, you know margins are on the up and up. I'll also talk a little bit about uh, the freight market, uh, provide an update on that uh, from a combination of the data that we have in FreightWaves Sonar, and also uh, so some of what uh, my colleagues at FreightWaves have, have written about. Um, I'll try to curate that to uh, items that CPG companies uh, would care about uh, specifically or companies that serve uh, CPG companies. Um, so before I do those things, if anyone has not signed up already for the FreightWaves Stockout newsletter, you can do that at www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout. It's also going to be the first one under newsletters. So I try to send that out every Wednesday, um, early afternoon at uh, two o'clock uh, Eastern time and sort of, sort of go through whatever is interesting from the world of CPG, CPG supply chains and um, our freight data. And uh, lately there's been fewer issues with CPG supply chains in terms of trucks not showing up, ingredients that haven't been found packaging that's not available. So a little bit harder to find things to, to, to write about, although I think most CPG companies would would take that. Um, but there's still you know plenty to discuss. And I'll get into the first topic here, which is Tyson announces corporate job cuts. This one uh, caught my attention because I think most of the big CPG companies are not um, you know cutting costs. So basically the news was last Wednesday, their CEO, Donnie King, sends out um, internal a uh, memo that says that they're going to cut 10% of the corporate uh, roles and 15% of the senior leadership position. And when you put that into numbers, um, you know, Tyson overall has 124,000 employees. Most of those are kind of rank and file working at the plants. Uh, about 6,000 are corporate employees. So 10% of their cutting, let's call it 600, um, you know, job eliminations. Um, and so uh, they're also said so they're reorganizing the workforce, putting uh, some automation under the engineering you know, envelope, moving uh, sales under the business and growth envelope. Um, they had announced earlier in the year they're going to close their Illinois and South Dakota offices, moving those people potentially to Arkansas. So hopefully um, you know, people weren't relocated just to, to, to lose their positions. Um, they also had closed some facilities. So it's part of this a uh, sort of pretty, um, you know, wide uh, reorganization effort, and you know, found it interesting because, um, you know, really a lot of the other CPG companies seem to be posting good results. I think the the meat segment, meat processors, really go under, you know, different uh, sort of market forces, and uh, really was kind of a dramatic, um, you know, turnaround since the beginning of the pandemic, where you know, recall the meat processing companies really were posting, uh, you know, very strong. Uh, margins, growth, very high, um, you know, pricing uh, power, and it was so high that the Biden administration were, was convinced that uh, the CPG company or the, or the the meat processors specifically were maybe price gouging, um, and that the industry was anti-competitive because you have those four companies that you know dominate eighty or eighty-five percent of the, the the market have a graphic that shows the meat processors, um, you know, net income and how that's risen over the years. And you see that that bottom chart, 
that 2021, um, and that was actually an estimate at the time, this was from the report and White House that of, uh, you know, Biden administration you know, put this out to sort of support, well, as part of their effort to improve competitiveness in the U.S. economy, they needed to go after the, the, the meat processors. But that 2021, you know, really an anomaly because now the profitability um, in the last quarter was down, was down about 70%, 65, 70% for uh, you know, JBS as well as Tyson. And so, um, you know, really kind of, uh, you know, just, you know, conflicted with you know, the materials that the Biden administration had put out. So it's not clear that, um, you know, the, the administration continues to view that as being an, an issue. They did invest about a billion dollars in independent meat processors. They're part of that smaller group um, in order to try to enhance uh, competitiveness um, and just really was kind of one you know, thing that um, I think the government was maybe too was premature on. If you want to bring up a stock chart of uh, Tyson uh, Foods, you know, there we have it. There, it's really been kind of a round trip during the pandemic. There's a lot of companies you could say were pandemic, uh, you know, round trips in terms of their stock price. But you now this one specifically, it dipped down. It was, was about, um, you know, let's, let's call it ninety dollars at the end of 2019. Dipped all the way down to. Uh, almost forty dollars shot up to a hundred dollars. Now it's at sixty-two dollars. So been been quite a volatile, you know, situation, which um, might be great for hedge funds. Probably not great for, um, you know, the management teams of blood pressure and the long-term uh, shareholders that like to buy and hold it. Um, but but really now, I think um, you know the dynamics are the company. You know, company is trying to uh, streamline their cost structure. You know, I think some of their comments on the the management, um, you know, reorganization. If the, if the corporate roles you know, made it sound like they had too many, uh, you know, people, it's kind of too much fat in the organization, and so they're going to try to write this shift. They do report um, next Monday, and uh, it might be one of the only CPGs that has not, uh, you know, beaten the, the the estimate. It seems like most of the companies so far have been able to beat uh, Wall Street expectations that have reported their um, first quarter here in April, either from a combination of very muted. You know, elasticities or from uh, margin improvement or just from fewer supply chain issues, which is helping getting these companies' products on shelves, as in addition to, um, you know, reducing uh, some of the costs from uh, some exceptions. So we'll look forward to that. I'll plan on writing uh, that up when they report next week. Uh, Topic number two here, move on to some of the other sort of CPG, you know, items. I already talked about a lot of the other companies in the newsletter and on the previous shows of uh, most CPG companies have done well. You know, this this earnings season, um, you know, Unilever late last week was one of the latest CPG companies to show muted elasticities. Um, they had 10.7% price growth in the quarter and volume only declined 0.2%. So that's um, not only better than, you know, what you would expect based on their history, but better than most other CPGs as well. You look at the whole group and maybe their elasticity is, is maybe a 0.35. So for every, you know, 100 basis points, they increase um, price had about 35 basis points, you know, decline in, in, in volume. So really not seeing much decline there. And uh, one thing that's encouraging, I think from a consumer perspective about that 10.7% price growth, yes, it's very high, still up double digits, but not as bad as it has been the previous quarters where it had been more like in the 12 to 13% range. I think there was one quarter was 13.3%. So some of that is just moderating in the cost of the inputs uh, that's being passed on in the form of disinflation or inflation at a lower growth rate. And also some of that is just lapping very high price increases from 
the previous year. One thing that was interesting is the company talked about its ice cream segment, the volume in ice cream down 4% on a similar 10% increase in pricing. So, you know, there you have a 0.4 elasticity, which um, just suggests that, you know, you don't have to eat ice cream is more discretionary in uh, in nature. So it, it's it's not that consumers, you know, are not under pressure or not, um, you know, reacting to some CPG price increases. It's just not any worse than I think most of these companies would have expected for or budgeted for. And most of the companies that that I've seen report, um, you know, first quarter earnings have done, you know, better than expectations, um, you know, kind of turned to some of the geographies. I mean, most of the, uh, these companies have been mixed by geography and, um, you know, lever, no exception. They said U.S. sales growth about 8%. They're happy with the India growth of 11.3%. A lot of these companies are benefiting from China's reemergence, which China is just now coming out of the lockdown, or at least had been in, in sort of the recent months. And so you have that, a lot of just, you know, untapped consumer, um, you know, spending power, maybe people who saved money during the the lockdown, sort of the way that the that the U.S. consumers, uh, you know, saved money. So I think a lot of uh, good things happening with uh, CPG companies, uh, you know, overall. I think the the group's in a pretty good spot. Uh, from here, I'll turn to the freight market, and uh, if I had to summarize it in one line, it would be that excess truck capacity is absorbing any pickup in a demand. Have a chart that uh, from Sonar they want to bring up, and so this is a chart that shows, you know, two of sort of the, the flagship um, data series from, from from Sonar. So in white line, we have the outbound tender rejection index. This is going to be across all equipment types on the highway. So it's going to include dry van, reefer, and flatbed. And you see it there at 2.9%. That's really close to the all-time low. Uh, but what's interesting is when you map that against the blue line, there was the outbound tender volume index. So that's a measure of uh, demand. It's uh, a tender is a request uh, from a shipper uh, to move a load. And you see that that's actually increased about 6% in the last week. Um, kind of unusual for that to happen in April. April is usually a slow month for freight. Uh, it's usually you would see maybe some surge in in March, which didn't take place, but maybe some of that March volume end up moving in, in April. You can think about things like uh, summer merchandise tends to be bigger um, you know, things like patio furniture, grills, a lot of beverages, um, you know, produce go go into that too. So that, that's increased in the last week. And usually when you see an increase in a demand, you would also see an increase in uh, tender rejections. And so um, the increase in, in demand without the increase in tender rejections suggests that there's plenty of excess capacity, even with that increase in, in, in demand and that all that excess, um, you know, demand is being absorbed in the contract market not a lot falling to the to the spot market, so still not going to be a lot of spot activity. And um, it's just kind of a litmus test when you see uh, tender rejections stay at a low level when you have an increase in demand that there's plenty of excess uh, capacity. Some other interesting stats here that um, my colleague uh, Don Gilbert wrote up. He says, I have 135 markets, 110 have shown an increase in tender volumes over the past uh, two weeks. That supports the idea that um, this demand increase is widespread, not isolated. It could also um, be a positive sign for um, the consumer economy that you know things aren't continuing to get you know worse. That um, you know maybe now that inflation is off of its high, maybe it's gr- growing. The CPI five percent is a lot better than ten percent plus. That uh, the consumer is still hanging in there 
And I think some of the companies that benefit from that are a lot of the companies I talk about on this show. And in my newsletter, a lot of these big uh, CPG companies. So continue that. The, so view that as uh, being uh, somewhat of a, a positive, um, but certainly would expect that spot rates to remain depressed, uh, you know, based on that. Uh, another thing that uh, one of my colleagues wrote up, uh, Michael Rudolph, he wrote up uh, this freight wave supply chain power index, they have a graphic on, on this, and it's a 25. And what that means is that the marketing of uh, the, the market power is still weighted towards the shipper. So we do that as a scale from zero to 100. Zero would mean that the shippers have complete control of, of the market. Um, carriers have no pricing power. Shippers can name their price. 100 mean, would mean that the carriers could uh, name their price. I think it's gotten as low as about um, you know 15, uh, maybe 20 is, is the low. So still close to the, the lowest that we've, we've had it. We'll point out that that is a qualitative assessment. I think some of the questions we get um, suggest that people think we put all our freight waves data in some kind of Black-Scholes model and it spits out a number. That's not how it works. It's uh, the research guys look at the data every day and uh, we talk to uh, companies in the industry and we sort of uh, qualitatively decide what that number uh, should be. Uh, but really, uh, the idea is that still carriers uh, are still shippers uh, market and the outlook for the coming months is 30. So that's a, maybe a little bit of um, strength suggested in the market from a from a weak level, but still not yet um, an outlook where it's going to be a, a, a balanced uh, market. I want to highlight another article that was written by um, you know, a colleague of mine, John Kingston, and he uh, put, up an, put out an article from the, the TIA, so that's the Transportation Intermediaries Association. So this was um, you know, took place you know, a week or two ago uh, in uh, late April. So this is a company that a TIA, um, it's really the sort of the major 3PL uh, you know, conference, and they had some uh, CPG companies on this panel that John Kingston uh, described. Um, I encourage you to go to the site and uh, check this out. It's also linked if you go to Michael Rudolph's um, article on the uh, Freight wave supply chain pricing power index I was talking to you about earlier. So uh, some of the things that came, uh, were um, in this this uh, John Kingston article that we're showing on the screen here is you know Del Monte was on the stage there, so they went from a went to a six month RFP during 2022 when capacity was tight. We've heard that from that from other you know shippers, um, and and now it's back to the one year RFPs that um, you know basically with contract rates starting to come down. They're a little bit more comfortable with those. They want to, you know, if possible, extend out those contracts for a longer period of time. They said Del Monte is operating in between 800 and 1,000 lanes. If their RFP covers $130 million in, in in freight spend, they say that the shippers um, are being absolutely bombarded with calls from brokers. So it's the brokers that, um, you know, really sort of desperate for freight. It's pretty consistent with a lot of the articles we've, re we've written on FreightWaves.com about all the of all the broker um you know, brokers laying people off and uh, some shippers, um, I think it was Del Monte or maybe another one in that article said that they are the only year dealing with brokers that are over about 200 million um, in sales because they are concerned about the double brokering schemes. And so it does suggest that um, the double brokering is an issue out there. It's more than just an anecdote. And there is some economies of scale of having brokers, you know, up over that, you know, level. I mean, I've heard in the past from brokers that kind of that 300 million uh uh, sales um, level is is really where you sort of reach uh, you know critical um, mass. So I thought that was interesting, 
Another thing that was interesting is the shippers um, rank service repeatedly as the number one thing that shippers want. That's something that I've noticed, you know, come up is that maybe price is secondary to, to, to service right now. And it's not just, um, you know, accepting tenders, it's on-time pickup and delivery, the level of damage claims. I think it's probably twice as true in CPG because they not only want to um, reduce or eliminate the on-time and in-full fees that they could be charged by a big retailer, but those products have to be on shelves in order to keep your habitual customers. It's very easy in CPG for a customer to go from being a habitual customer of one company to a habitual customer of another company just because they went to Target for soap and they're going to walk out of Target with soap. And if it's not the one they always buy, it's going to be somebody else's. And so much of CPG is just sort of bought um, out of habit, really, uh, without a lot of thought, uh, you know, given to it until something is not on a shelf. And so, um, you know, really not surprising that service is number one, and um, they they rank, actually rank safety number two, and price um, a, a distant third. So it's something to to keep in mind for any any carriers um, and, and brokers, you know, listening to this, and um, we'll be interested to hear from any uh, CPGs if they um, you know agreed or, or disagreed with that assessment. Um, and related to service, um, you got an interesting question from a Sonar customer the other day, and um, they, they brought up the, the question based on the intermodal contract savings index. And so I want to put this, this on there. And so, so basically what this is, is uh, our data team is looking at intermodal, uh, rail intermodal uh, contract uh, transactions that have been processed in the last week that have a five-digit origin and destination pair that coincides with a separate transaction that's on the highway. So drive van that has the very same five-digit origin destination pair that moved on the same week. So you have essentially a 53-foot container and a drive van trailer moving on the highway um, in the same, you know, same lane in the same week. And sort of to get at what is actually the spread that we're seeing in the field as far as the discount that is associated with rail intermodal. And you tend to think of, okay, it tends to be about 10 to 15% is typical. So this, this question from uh, the, the customer was sort of at what point do shippers um, you know, prefer intermodal? What savings do they typically need to see? And I should, I should mention from this, this, this chart, the white line is all transactions. The green line is just transactions that exceed 1,200 miles. And really, the, 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 my response is it depends on exactly you know, what is being shipped, how time sensitive it is. On one end of the spectrum, if a uh, CPG company is moving, I don't know, paper towels, and there's plenty of those paper towels in the warehouse, uh, even at parity, they still might continue to use rail intermodal because that's just inventory in transit that they don't have to pay for in their warehouse, which their warehouse might be full. So it doesn't need to have a big spread, maybe not any spread. But at the same time, if a shipper is moving something that's absolutely critical, that's going to shut down a production line, or it's not going to be on on shelves. It's going to move, you know, truckload regardless of um, you know how much potential intermodal savings. That savings not going to be worth it. So it, it could be um, a wide range there. I think what's typical is domestic intermodal saving about ten to fifteen percent. We look at this chart, and overall it's down about uh, it's it's down to about nine percent, which is uh, you know at the low end of the range. You look at sort of historically based on that same exercise, we're anywhere from that 9% to up to about 20%, which which says to me that shippers are not saving a tremendous amount by using 
rail intermodal right now. And a lot of large part of that is, has been the weakness in uh, the truckload market. And also because the truckload contracts, like I was describing with Del Monte earlier, have, um, you know, been, uh, have been repriced, um, more consistently throughout the year, shorter term agreements, some of these mini bids. So I think the uh, pressure that's uh, been on most transportation markets has been felt first in truckload side of things. Um, a little bit later in intermodal. So I, I do think the intermodal contract rates are going to come down and that spread will will gravitate uh, up, um, but really not a lot of incentive uh, to move, um, you know, over uh, intermodal versus uh, the highway. Um, you know, right now, I think when it comes to service, the, um, you know, the service is really what causes intermodal um, shippers to, you know, stick with intermodal, uh, whereas the savings rate is really what entices shippers to first, um, you know, go to, to use, uh, you know, intermodal. But sort of the, um, you know, phrase you, you hear is that the logistics manager gets gets yelled at if they spend too much on transportation costs, but they get fired if those goods don't get to be where they need to be. So really, the the the, the safe thing is, is is using truckload, and it's really sort of the burden is on um, the intermodal uh, participants to. Um, demonstrate that the service is truck-like, which is about the best compliment you can give to um, intermodal, uh, you know, service. Um, you know, last week uh, we had a show on um, on the railroad industry, which I do every Thursday with Joanna Marsh, called "People Speaking Rail," and asked Ian Jeffries, who is the uh, the president and CEO of the Association of American Railroads. I asked um, Ian, you know, why hasn't intermodal grown? Um, faster than the truckload market the past you know, few years. We go through periods of tight truckload capacity. Why haven't, as an intermodal, been able to take share? And his response was, well, the intermodal, because you have the truckload on either side with the drayage, that it was impacted by tightness um, just as the, 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 the truckload has been impacted by, by that tightness. So I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective that um, you know, it's 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 not always one versus the other. It's 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 really that um, you know both uh, rail intermodal and, and truckload rely heavily on uh, truckload um, you know industry. Um, this this last uh, um, graphic I want to show is from an article that I'd also encourage people to read. It's on transatlantic uh, you know, shipping rates. This was written up, um, I believe it was published on Friday by Greg Miller, and so he's describing how. Uh, sort of the gravity is being felt in the transatlantic uh, shipping rates. Um, and of course, it's been some time since the areas come out of the rates in the trans-Pacific volume. Uh, the, so basically containers going from uh, China and Southeast Asia to, to the U.S., largely from China to L.A., Long Beach, uh, those um, rates have come way down from their highs. And you know, he wrote an article along similar um, you know, lines earlier where he was describing that the transatlantic uh, lane, it really had defied uh, you know, gravity for you know, some time. And really the reason for that was that there was more weakness felt earlier in the consumer economy where those retail inventories got to be at an elevated level. Consumers um, were cutting back on uh, spending, but that transatlantic uh, shipping volume is um, more driven by, you know, building supplies and secondarily from things like, you know, beverages, you know, think about like Heineken beer, furniture, you know, mechanical equipment, including auto parts. Think of all the, you know, German uh, companies in automobile industry um, and, and Italian companies involved in the automobile industry. So 
th- those are, um, you know, we're providing support there. And now the higher interest rates, you're getting the same drop off in demand in the transatlantic shipping, you know, not to mention the fact that you can start to redeploy capacity from uh, certain ocean lanes to certain other ocean lanes. So it always did seem like it was only a matter of time before the decline in the Trans-Pacific Ocean rates found its way into those transatlantic, um, you know, shipping rates. And we're, you know, seeing that uh, now, but um, definitely recommend uh, everyone follow, you know, Greg's articles uh, for anyone that is involved um, at all in international um, you know, ocean shipping uh, follows that uh, industry very closely, leverages a lot of data we have in, in, in Sonar and also uses a lot of his own um, you know, data and uh, numerous um, you know, industry contacts uh, there. Uh, so that's really what I wanted to go over today. Um, you know, as we uh, progress here later in, in earnings season, I'll continue to go through um, you know, earnings um, as uh, they, they come up on the CPG industry. Um, but that's really all I had today. I hope everyone has a great uh, Monday.